Spirit, you are welcome here. Come and fill this place. Come and fill us. As we turn to this sacrifice of thanks and praise, as we turn to this preaching, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would overrule and overwhelm. Overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said this morning is in accordance to the word of God. That what is said this morning is for the good of God's people. And more than that, that what is said this morning is for the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, it was a glorious Easter Sunday. Truly the Goldilocks of Easter Sundays. Not too cold, not too hot. It was that rare Easter Sunday where it was just late enough in the year where the chill of the night would burn off with the rising sun, and it was early enough where it was merely pleasantly warm by the time the Easter egg hunt was held after the worship services. The kids were running for the eggs. The pastor is enjoying the sun and the fellowship and the conversation, and he approached some people that he only saw a few times a year to talk with them, to engage them in conversation while their kids scrambled for the uh, non-chocolate, non-melting, candy-filled plastic eggs. Jane, the wife, the wife of the couple, Jane, she was horrified when her husband, Bob, blurted out, Preacher, you need to get some new material. Every time we're here, you preach about the resurrection." That's a funny story, right? I thought it was far more humorous than apparently you all did. It's funny on a few levels, but it's also a story that reveals a reality that is and can be all too consistent. We oftentimes restrict our preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to Easter Sunday, and this ought not be. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the middle of what we call the holy trifecta between crucifixion and ascension, is what Leslie Newbegin once referred to as the starting point of a holy new way of understanding the cosmos and the human situation in the cosmos. Now, it's great. Leslie Newbegin was a, a British man, so he has a different way of thinking and speaking and writing. What does this mean in plain English? It simply means this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. And so it ought to be something that we talk about on a routine basis, on a regular basis, not just on Easter Sunday. And so this morning, as we continue our sermon series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we do so by looking at the resurrection of Christ. We heard about the first witnesses to the resurrection from Matthew's gospel this morning. We heard about the resurrection from two of St. Paul's letters this morning. And as we think about these three passages together, I'd like for us to consider this big idea. The resurrection of Jesus was an act of the Trinity in which the victory is declared and that victory is shared. When it comes to the resurrection, about the only thing that... Uh, can be said with certainty for some folks is that Jesus was dead. In the ancient world, they knew what death was, and the Romans knew how to make 
sure that someone died. Executed by professionals, buried by men of reputation, with the rock sealed and guarded, Jesus was dead and he was buried. There's no controversy there. The day after the Sabbath, very early in the morning, near dawn, Mary and Mary were, went to the tomb. In a different gospel context, in Mark's gospel, he tells us that Mary and Mary went to the tomb to finish anointing Jesus' corpse for his burial. They knew he was dead. They expected him to stay dead. But when they got there, the new era had dawned because Jesus was alive. There was an earthquake and an angel. The place where Jesus' body had been laid was empty. And the women heard the angel say, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. And come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. I want to tell you this morning that just as there really is no controversy over whether Jesus was dead, so there is no real controversy over whether Jesus is alive. In one of the first direct encounters with the risen Jesus, Mary and Mary met with the dead, but now alive Jesus. It's significant that the first witnesses of the resurrection were two women. Women, by the way, in that day and age, would not have been legally accepted as witnesses in a trial. It doesn't make sense if you're going to fake something, you wouldn't use women as the first witnesses. Even more than that, over the next several days, the risen Jesus was seen by many. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, ten disciples in the upper room, and then again, ten disciples plus Thomas in the upper room. That's 11. St. Paul, writing in that wonderful chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in what many consider to be an early creedal statement for the church, he declares that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them, he says, are still alive. At the writing of that letter, the implication is for Paul, if you want proof of the resurrection, go talk to the people who saw it. Paul goes on to say that he appeared, Jesus appeared to James and then to all of the apostles. And then he says he appeared also to me. Here's the point for us this morning. As surely as Jesus was dead, executed at the hands of Roman soldiers, so he is surely alive, seen and attested by witnesses. The women at the tomb, the apostles, 500 brothers, James, Paul, and others. This resurrection as the crucifixion was an act of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an act of God in time and history that really happened. It was an act of the Trinity. In Acts chapter 2, as he preached to the crowds in the city of Jerusalem, St. Peter declared that God raised Jesus up. God raised him up, he says, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The Father did the raising. But the Son was more than a passive recipient. In John chapter 2, Jesus was speaking to a crowd in the temple when he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John the evangelist, the author of the gospel, explains, He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection was an act of the Father, an act of the Son, but it's also the resurrection is an act of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 3, 
St. Peter declares that God made Jesus alive in the Spirit. And he's strongly implying in that context that the Spirit was the instrument of Jesus' resurrection. And so it's important for us to see, just as it was important for us to see and recognize the crucifixion involved the fullness of the charity working out on our behalf salvation, so the resurrection involves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working on our behalf in time and history for our salvation, for our good, for our redemption. This buys into, or this, this connects right into the very nature of what the resurrection is. Besides that coming back to life bit, the resurrection does something for us. First, let's consider the resurrection of Jesus as a declaration of victory. This past Monday night at our Alpha session, we talked about, we heard Nikki Gumbel talk about, and then our small groups broke out, and we, we talked about why Jesus was crucified. Alpha is an amazing opportunity for us to interact with people who don't yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior in a way that shows hospitality and builds relationship, and they hear the gospel. And on Monday night, as, as Nikki Gumbel talked about why Jesus was crucified because of sin and God's love for us and a desire to offer forgiveness for sin, he said that the resurrection of Jesus was the declaration of victory in the cross. That the cross itself, what looked like defeat, was in actuality a victory. How do we know? Because Jesus is alive. The cross of Jesus, his crucifixion, was that action of God in which Jesus was made to be the curse for sin. He was made to be sin as the wrath of the Father was poured out upon the Son, and the Spirit brought up, applied that sacrifice in the heavenlies. The resurrection of Jesus on that third day is the proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by the Father and that his sacrifice for the sins of the world was effective. The resurrection of Jesus is how we know the cross worked to use such crass language. It's a sign of victory. Jesus emerging from the tomb means the king has won, the king has conquered and if you'll allow me another quote from Leslie Newbegin, he says this, The resurrection is not the reversal of a defeat, but the proclamation of a victory. The king reigns from a tree. St. Paul, writing in Colossians chapter 2, specifically comes to this theme of victory when he writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered hell. Jesus has conquered all the forces of evil. In and upon the cross, Jesus suffered real pain and death. And as he suffered that, all the enemies of God were defeated and rendered impotent. A few years ago, the OU Sooners won an important football game at then-ranked number two Ohio State. After the game had ended, the final buzzer went off, and, and OU had won. Quarterback Baker Mayfield took the OU flag, and he ran out to midfield. He ran out to the 50-yard line, and in the middle of Ohio State's uh, seal, he jammed the flag into the turf. He claimed, basically claimed, Ohio State's home field as his own. When Jesus rose from the tomb, fully alive, 
He was proclaiming his victory. He was planting his flag, claiming that what was the devil's home turf was now his own, that he had conquered sin and death and hell, the devil himself. And Jesus' victory, crucifixion, resurrection, the victory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this trifecta, this is why the resurrection is the starting point of a new way. This is why the resurrection is the starting point of the new understanding of the cosmos and humanity with it. This is why everything has changed. Because Jesus is victorious. There is, as the song puts it, a victory in Jesus. And then... This is the mind-blowing, amazing thing. Then Jesus shares his victory with those who believe. Jesus shares the fruit of his death and resurrection with his people. And we talk about a variety of fruits of the Trinity's work in the cross and resurrection. Biblically, we talk about forgiveness of sin that is available. We talk about reconciliation between God and humanity made possible. We talk about adoption to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And these are amazing, overwhelming, kind, gracious, and loving results of God's work in this trifecta. This morning, however... I'd like for us to focus on the blessing of true life now, lived in the Holy Spirit, and true life later received in the future. Now and later is more than just a tasty piece of candy. Now and later is true life. In his first letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul discusses the resurrection of Jesus in chapter 15. At verse 17, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is vitally important for life now, for true life now. Because if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then the the recipients of that letter to the the Corinthians, and, and we ourselves, we are still in our sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there is no salvation, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus would have just been another crucified criminal, dead and buried. And our faith would be placed in one who accomplished nothing upon the cross. There's no possibility of forgiveness. There's no possibility of new life now. But in fact, St. Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised to a new mode of existence, life in the Spirit. And we, by grace through faith, are raised to new life, the life in the Spirit. The fruit that Jesus shares with us is life, new life, true life, now lived in the Spirit. This new way to be human, God's true way to be human, is present now because of Jesus, His death and His resurrection. We see this discussed multiple places. I want to draw your attention to simply two. First, in Romans chapter 6, at verse 4, we read that we were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In this passage, Paul goes on to discuss the life of one who believes in Jesus being lived in union with Christ. By grace, through faith, the believer in Jesus is put to death and is brought to life by the act and power of God. New life, true life, now. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul unfolds what it means to live that new life, that true life, now by talking about living life in the Spirit. 
In Romans chapter 8, as we heard read this morning from Jeff at verses 10 and 11, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus' resurrection means a victory over sin and death. It means that while the battle is ongoing, the victory is secure because Jesus has won it. Paul then, based upon what Jesus has accomplished, calls men and women who believe in him to intentionally live in the power, in the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and to be done with sin, to live for him. That's new life. That's true life. And it's now. But the resurrection of Jesus is also the promise of true life later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, St. Paul goes on to press his argument. If, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, he says, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. There is, because of Jesus' resurrection, true life now, but there is, because of the resurrection of Jesus, true hope for life later. That big but of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, is a beautiful big but. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is alive, and because Jesus is is alive salvation true life now is available and life later life in the future is also promised because of the resurrection of jesus believers in jesus have hope this confident expectation not a mere wishing but a confident expectation of life of a different quality in this world and life of a different quantity in jesus kingdom to come in fact, this is what Paul says as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 progresses. It talks about Jesus ascending into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, awaiting that time for him to come again. And when he comes again, there will be life eternal, life later. And Christ's resurrection ensures salvation in the present and hope for the future, even and especially in the face of death. Because death itself will die because of Jesus. In the midst of 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul puts this, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then he says, death is swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? God's victory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection happened. And it's good news that Jesus' resurrection happened because without the resurrection, we're dead Dead now, dead later, which is dead. But all who believe are brought into true and lasting life and are given a true and lasting hope for the future because Jesus is alive. Jesus raised from the dead into a new mode of being, physically raised into a sphere of existence in which the spirit and the power of God are on full display. Jesus is fully and truly alive. He carries the scars of crucifixion. He is still the incarnate Son. His mode of life is now different. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, which we'll talk about coming next week. But that life that he now lives is the model of the later life we will receive.
And folks, maybe we, it's time simply to ask the question, what difference does this really make? Yeah, we come together on a Sunday morning and we worship, and well, what happens, what difference does a resurrection make when the shine of worship is off us at noon on Sunday? And what happens between noon on Sunday and the next Sunday at uh, 10, or who are we kidding, 10.15? <laughs> I was looking at Jason, but I was talking about you, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> what difference does a resurrection make in real life? Well, I think it makes a huge difference. It changes the way we live, quite honestly. It should change the way we live. The difference is this. The resurrection of Jesus is the work of the triune God who gives us a new life to live now. We can't it just go about doing life the way life was done before. Because of the resurrection, things are different. Things have changed. The cosmos is different. Our understanding of ourself and the world and our place in it is different. Why? Because Jesus is alive. And so there's an ethical component to this. Having received the forgiveness of God, having been restored to the Father, adopted to the Father through the Son in the Spirit, we now have a different life, true life, in the now. Living in obedience to the Father, living in communion with the Son, living in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We actively are called to be different, to be done with what was before, put away in sin. And living towards Christ, living to Christ. That changes everything. That changes our priorities. That changes our preferences. That changes the way we interact with our family, our friends, our neighbors. That changes how we do or don't have conversations with people. Because Jesus is alive. And there's hope for tomorrow. A new life now, adopted to the Father, dead to sin, living in the Spirit, alive in Christ, hoping for tomorrow. How do we know that there will be a later? How do we know that there will be life beyond this life, beyond this? How do we know? Because Jesus is alive. How do we know his promises are true? Because Jesus is alive. And we can talk an awful lot about world religions and philosophies, but the single biggest distinction between all of the world religions is this simple fact. Jesus is alive. Muhammad can make promises about how to live now and some vague promises about the future, but Muhammad died, and he stayed dead. The Buddha can talk about and did talk about and make all kinds of promises about putting down and, and, and just moving past everything in this world and suffering and, and turning to, but the Buddha died, and the Buddha stayed dead. Jesus told us what was going to happen, killed this body, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll build it back. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Jesus is alive. And so we know that we have a new way, a true way to be human now. And because Jesus is alive, we know that there is a promise for a better tomorrow, a later life. And shouldn't that change the way we live? Shouldn't suddenly the worries and the stress, the stress and the struggles of this present context, this present darkness, shouldn't that be lived in the light of a better tomorrow, in light of the future, so that even while we lay dying, even while we have a diagnosis that is heartbreaking, even while we suffer real loss, we know that there is life later 
because of who Jesus is, because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus was an act of the Trinity in which victory is declared, and that victory is shared. Christ is alive. The new has come, now and later. And so this morning, by way of simple application, perhaps as we sing this morning, as we turn to the Lord in praise, allow the truth of God's word, allow the truth of God's actions in history, crucifixion and resurrection, allow these things to seep into your very morrow. The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these are things that we need to be marinated in. These are things that need to flavor us. And so allow it to bring you conviction. Allow it to bring you comfort. Allow it to lead you to praise. Allow it to lead you to repent. Allow the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, God's work, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's work in history to do all of these things, to bring us life now and later, to be at work in us for our good, but ultimately, allow these things to be at work in us for God's greater glory. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious God, we praise you. What kindness you show us more and more as we see the gospel, Jesus sacrifice upon the cross, the good news of the way you, Father, Son, and Spirit, have worked in time and history for salvation. We praise you. Lord, help us to see ourselves rightly and to know you truthfully. And in that, Lord, may we know you, Father, as the one who loves us in the Son and through the Spirit. Come and be at work in us by the power and presence of your Spirit as we turn our hearts to you in song. Come, inhabit the prayers and the praises of your people. Come and be at work. Come and glorify yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and continue our worship as we sing.